This is Tony Roth, and you're listening to Capital Considerations. And we have a really cool episode today with a great guest. And this episode, the way I think about it, it's all about the instincts of fear and greed and how they play against each other and what they do to investors when they invest. And if you're the kind of investor that follows the plan, meets with us once a year, gets the update, and then goes and lives your life and doesn't really think about what's going on with your portfolio and doesn't really look at the level of the, the S&P or the, the Dow Jones every day, I think you'll find this pretty interesting. But if on the other hand, you're the kind of investor that is asking how the market do today, every day, and you are opening your account and you're saying, gee, I lost this amount today or I made this amount today, then I think you're going to find this conversation vital and indispensable and really just personal in, in a lot of ways. So Dr. Stephen Chu has just a, an amazing career in behavioral finance. He's been in the industry for three decades as a behavioral finance specialist. And he's worked as a consultant. He's worked at a lot of industry-leading firms. Um, he's currently a principal at Digital Nudging Technology, which is a behavioral economics consultancy. And he's a behavioral finance advisor to Voya Behavioral Finance Institute for Innovation. He's also a member of the faculty at Cornell um, at the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. And he's written lots of studies on behavioral finance. So with that background, welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. And also, please keep in mind that nothing we say today is an endorsement to buy or sell any given stock or security. I think maybe the starting point for the conversation is that I've learned over many years that the best way to provide financial advice to clients is to help them ferret out what their goals and objectives are over the long term, figure out sort of what their psychological tolerance is with, with risk. And we define that as drawdown exposure. So if you lose 5% or 10% or 20% in your portfolio, what is your reaction to that going to be? Um, are you going to lose sleep? Are you going to sort of roll with the punches and be okay? And we roll that all up into an investment plan. We even create what we call an investment policy statement for many clients, which is sort of a, an agreement so everybody knows the roles and responsibilities. And we have our long-term goals codified, if you will, in that, in that plan and that IPS. And we put everything in motion and we follow it. But then something happens, which is the world turns out differently than we expected either to the positive or to the negative. And in the case where we have a situation like we have recently, where we've had this big, huge spike down and then up in, in stocks with the pandemic, and then in the, in the wake of the pandemic, we now have a war in Eastern Europe, and we've got a, a, a recalcitrant China to do a lot of the things that we thought that they would do as a, a more modern and, and evolving and opening country. And it's causing a lot of stress for investors, inflation, et cetera. And not a day goes by, we don't have clients calling up saying, gee, I think I should de-risk. I think I should get out. And it's that fear coming into the into the um, the equation. And it's always that way, right? It doesn't matter whether it's 9-11 or Black Monday, or you can go through the history of stress events in the market. And there are always things that just resonate and that bring that fear to the surface for people. And you want to run for the hills. So, Stephen, how should we get into this conversation? What are the what are the basic concepts, psychological biases, 
you know, archetypes of behavior? How do we, how do we start to think about, look in the mirror and think about how we act and, and what are the, the tools to have this conversation we need to start with? So behavioral finance is really the combination of psychology and finance. And so I think one of the most useful models that I've seen put forth was by Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. He put forth this sort of dual process way of thinking, which is kind of this system one thinking, which is fast thinking, uh, autonomous thinking. It's like thinking when I throw you a basketball, you kind of catch it. Uh, versus kind of the system two thinking, which is like this more reflective thinking when you take a test. And I think we don't realize that we make tens of thousands of decisions every day. We've probably already made thousands of decisions today. And so talking about the process that you had with setting goals and assessing tolerance for risk, it's a, it's a really good thing because the system one fast autonomous thinking is like the predominant easiest method of thinking, but having the structured process for reflecting, reflecting on your goals, pre-thinking about how you will address risk. I think these are important processes because you want to not give everything kind of this system one attention. There are certain things that you do want to reflect upon and kind of bring that to bear. And then in terms of biases, lots of people have them. I, I don't like to use the term irrational. They're just sort of this natural. I mean, I have a bias. I'm kind of nearsighted, right? I have, I have to use corrective lenses. But there are some biases that definitely affect like how people behave in the, the financial world. One of them is kind of this present bias thing, which is you see things that are very near to you uh, much more closely than things far away. It's a, it's a bit harder and it takes time to reflect. So uh, the example that I use of this is imagine you're standing like three blocks away from a building and between you and this building is this lamppost and you're standing close to the lamppost and the lamppost looks larger than the building when you're standing close and it really takes you effort to kind of step back and see that actually the building is uh, much larger. So I think that there, there are these biases, but I think that having good processes can help you kind of work through some of these biases. So that uh, those were two points. You know, we have to recognize that there's this fast and slow thinking, system one and system two thinking, but also recognize that there are biases that can kind of throw us, you know, have us misperceptions and judgment. Yeah, I, mean, I love the way you're framing that. Um, and they're, they're related, obviously. So I read the I read Dr. Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, recommend it to anybody that may be listening. A great read, great for the summer, by the way. Can actually read it on the beach without falling asleep, which is tough for me. So when I think about the, what we do with all that planning work, it's really trying to appeal to your system two brain, which yep. is, you know, go slow and buy into the process, get committed to and understand why you're doing it, because inevitably system one is going to try to overtake and deflect you. And you're going to see things with that recency bias, right? The, the light post is going to look bigger than it is. And then you're going to try to divert from the plan. Right? Exactly. Yep. If we're all rational people, 90, 95% of us fall in the camp of how the market do today, open up the evening news or look at your phone and see what the S&P did, or even open up your account and see what your portfolio looks like every day. How much did I win or lose today? Well, you know, it's just, it just doesn't mean anything, right, until you actually realize those gains or losses. Why do we do that? Why don't we just know that it's always worked in the long term and you're going to be okay and live your life and don't don't be so stressed by your portfolio every day in the market 
you know, every, every two hours, you know, open up CNBC. Why do we do that to ourselves? It's a bit of curiosity. I mean, everyone's a little bit different about these things. I think that's another piece that we have to recognize that there's this fast and slow thinking. There's a lot of individual differences. I mean, we do like kind of those hits and um, getting the sensational things in the news and talking about it. And I think, I think that can be okay to some extent. It depends upon your individual sort of personality type or the way you think. But I think it's also you have to recognize, are you going to take action on that? And I think you have seen a lot of studies where folks maybe weigh things like less reliable sources, things like bulletin boards and news sites, and don't look at more reliable information uh, coming out of things when they make decisions. So I think it's just, it's in our nature to kind of look at these things. I mean, gaming is all built on, you get some feedback, you make some investment, you kind of get addicted to things. So I think there's a sort of addiction and habit and just things that we're kind of used to and we kind of fall into those traps. You have to then separate out sort of, and we do this in the field, which is separating out judgments from actual decisions. So we might feel a particular way, but then before we make a judgment, we do want to uh, reflect, if you will or make sure that we understand to what extent we impact our judgments. So in order to make smart decisions, intuition can be helpful, can lead us in the right direction sometimes. But even if we have an intuition, we still want to be able to step back and say, hey, does this make sense? So how do we, as human beings, sometimes the level one just takes over level two. So what are some tools or what are some ways that we can control our fears if you will, when we have moments like the market's down 20% or maybe the market's back up 15% as it is today, but you just look at the inflation every day and you think this is is the time to sell because it's got to go back down. But it's not really a, it's an intuition. It's maybe based on one or two data points with some recency bias and stuff, but it's not looking at the full picture. So what are some tools that people can use to try to walk back a little bit of that level one taking over and that sort of emotion. There's two things that come to mind immediately based on kind of what you said. One is this like immediate things of fear and uh, immediate things that cause issues. And I think one example is this known of like, um, you know, whether you're in a hot state or a cold state, you can be very influenced by kind of the things that are close to you as so you don't want to you don't want to make kind of these decisions when you're in a hot state. You want to recognize when you're in a hot state versus a cold state. And so I think that's that's one critical perspective. Wait, is this marriage sure. advice or is this investing advice? I want to make sure I understand <laughs> exactly. what you're in here. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing that is really tricky, and it's part due to some of the technology that's around us. I mean, we think about a company like Google. It's a trillion dollar plus market cap firm has really optimized like what I'm looking for. So if I like, for example, search whether I should buy GameStop stock, they'll get like 76% of the results confirming my result or maybe 90%. If I look for why should I sell GameStop stock, I might get 80%. But people tend to look what they're looking for as, and that creates this sort of confirmation bias. Right. And really, people should be kind of stepping back. And also, whenever they do kind of look for confirming information, they should look for some disconfirming information as well. 
So this is this hot state and cold state. Don't make decisions when you're in a hot state. All the stuff that's salient, all these emotions that may be driving decisions to your disadvantage. And then there's this notion that we tend to be kind of overconfident and have kind of these confirmation biases. I always tease our economist, Luke Tilley, who's, who's brilliant. But I'm always teasing him. The, the employment report comes out and it shows that the labor market's on fire and wage growth is strong. And Luke has a thesis that inflation is actually going to come down a little faster than people realize. So he'll look at that report and he'll say, he'll say, oh, well, this is very confirmatory of my thesis because, and he won't see those data points. Now, he's a professional. He sees both sides of it. I like to tease him, but it's really hard, isn't it, to not confirm your own. And of course, this is not a political conversation, but in politics, right, if you're on the, if you're on the left, you watch MSNBC. Uh, or CNN or whatever it is, and it does nothing but confirm your bias, your, you know, your own your own thoughts right. and feelings. And if you're on the right, you're going to watch Fox and do the same thing, right? Right. And how many how many Fox people watch CNBC or NBC or vice versa, right? People don't do that because they just want to hear what they want to hear. Exactly. Yeah. It and it takes energy. At the end of the day, sometimes we're tired, and you know, there's this depletion of like resources. You only have so much energy. How can you direct it? And looking for that confirmation or uh, disconfirming evidence can be painful. It takes energy. It takes a little bit of work. The more we can get help, the more we can get outside perspectives and sort of like share the load of doing that. I think that's helpful. I do think advisory or even guided processes for uh, kind of working through these alternate forms of thinking, I think, is is powerful and, and good because we live in an uncertain world. And it's actually that's another barrier to human thinking is that we have a hard time forecasting. We have a hard time thinking about multiple futures. My brain gets twisted anytime I see one of these Marvel movies with the multiverse, uh, you know, yeah. it really like twists my brain. Right. But. That is part of thinking about risk is multiple futures. What happens if something goes well? How do I feel about it? What if it went wrong? Why did it go wrong that or if it went wrong? I think uh, really stretching well, we through have, that thinking. We have to do is we've got to we've got to de-escalate the emotion and then we have to make sure that we're seeing both sides of the picture. Um, exactly. and that takes work to see both sides and before we make our decision. Yeah. And that's really I think what you're saying. So when you look at the folks that are investing in meme stocks, do you think that's bad or good? Because I think there's a very rational perspective for investing in meme stocks, which is that you look at the cycle of these stocks, right? And there's been five, 10, 15 cycles where they go down and they go up, they go down and they go up. And so if you're rational, you might say, well, when they hit this level going down, then you know, because they're so volatile, right? That's, yeah. an op that's a very powerful trading opportunity. Just go back yeah. in it for a short period of time and it goes back up and then sell it. Um, but then what happens is the greed instinct comes in, right? And then yeah. you don't sell it and then you just hold on to it and it goes back down again. Same thing with Bitcoin and crypto, right? And then there's this fear of missing out. You're on the sideline. You have a very boring, unsexy plan. You're not really playing in those markets. You're not day trading. You're not um, day trading cryptocurrency. But I think that for certain, the certain person, there's, there could be a rational basis for getting involved in that kind of stuff. But then again, you get you start feeling the adrenaline of winning, and then the greed takes over, and you don't follow through with your plan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do like sort of. There's two sides to this. I mean, cryptocurrencies, meme stocks, uh, different trading apps. I think they have 
made things more accessible, I mean, uh, to, to folks, which I think can be a good thing. I mean, I remember back to the uh, early 80s, and I don't know if you remember the value line investment books, uh, but they yeah. were like phone book size things and computers were 16K computers had less memory than my phone. And, and it was not that accessible to do trading per se. And so I think uh, having access to that is good. I've seen some things on the other side of the spectrum too, though, with companies that have made trading very similar to social media. One company, and I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, but there's there's a company called eToro. I don't know if you've seen that one, but you basically see like the equivalent of social media personalities, and you can essentially follow their investment portfolios. And you don't actually know all, all the stuff that's kind of buried inside is maybe buried five, six clicks deep in. So there's a trade-off between kind of accessibility, but there's also this notion of do people, are they educated? Do they have the capabilities to actually know what they're getting into? So there's there's capabilities and confidence. And I think some of these things like crypto and 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 meme stocks have made the discussion easier for folks and made it more accessible. But I think there's also this kind of trade-off as to like, do I fully know what I'm getting involved with? Um, so there's, there's two sides there. I don't know if that helps answer. <laughs> well, it, well, I guess it, it just leads to, it does. And it leads to the, I think, recognition of the, the world we live in where there's just such a proliferation of information available. Yeah. That it does psychologically I think allow all of us to be experts and have at least have an opinion on everything. And yeah. if you have an opinion, it's easy to think that your um, your opinion is worth something, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And I think that underlies a lot of the sort of this. I don't know how to characterize it, but this really sort of crazy behavior and and meme stocks and and such. Yeah. I mean, it also brings the, the notion of this kind of digital world. There's actually quite a few studies right now that are around, does the mere presence of your smartphone basically inhibit your cognitive capabilities? And there have been studies that, and we, we ran some studies too, where people are asked to make a decision on a smartphone versus a, using pencil and paper versus on a computer. And the quality of the decisions, I think the general view is that they go down a bit. Uh, when you have it, even if you have the phone, you turn it upside down or you put it in, put it in your bags. If you put it in the outside room, uh, you, if you turn off the uh, just to vibrate, these things can kind of distract you and also kind of make cognitive decision making a little bit uh, more challenging. So I think we have to recognize that all this world of the digital stuff and the social stuff and the news, I think, can it does create a different environment than we've been faced with in the past anything you do on a phone intrinsically feels like it's a level one going back to the, the Kahneman archetype of level one versus level two right it's going to be a level one decision yeah. right and absolutely there is that bias right that if it makes it onto the onto your phone that there's probably some validity to it and we know of course in reality that half the stuff we read on our phones are probably not true Anything you read on your phone is going to just by its nature be more of a level one fast decision, and it's probably going to be you a know, good chance of being predicated on something that's not well thought through. Yeah. So let's change up and talk about what's available on our phones, you know, robo apps and that whole ecosystem of being able to access 
trading in real time from anywhere based on information that is often pretty incomplete, if not misleading. What do you think about that whole set of developments for people? Do you think it's, on the one hand, is it good because it provides knowledge as power, or is it the way it's being actually engaged in and disseminated typically is just pretty dangerous for most people? So it is a diverse landscape. I mean, I have seen some positive things about robos. I'll give you one example. Like I think kind of complexity in the world is a bit challenging. Sometimes robos have been able to use data and things like spending or things on income. And advisors can do this as well. But I've seen it done kind of with robos where they might accumulate that data and see things like maybe you're you have you know, excess cash that you can kind of actually put to work. Uh, and they can essentially draw on data and provide kind of this just-in-time kind of consultation. Now, this is not widespread by any means yet, but in the cases where I've, you know, they've pulled together data and thoughtful advice, if you will, and a just-in-time kind of capability, I think it can be beneficial. And I think that uh, advisors that can also do the same sort of thing where they understand a person's individual differences in their circumstances and they can interact with clients in the in the way that they need to be interacted with, I think is positive. On the other hand, yes, I, I agree that most of these decisions for most people probably should not be done on a daily basis. You should have these longer term plans, kind of stick with them, not be sucked in by emotions. And so I hesitate when robos try and just have people engage regularly because for the sake of engaging them. There should be some purpose, if you will. It's not like a news site per se, where we want everyone to engage every day. Uh, it's it, Financial decisions probably don't have to happen on that level. So yeah, I think there's you know, a balance. Somebody asked me recently, do you think it's okay if I trade crypto on a particular site and he showed me his phone and app on the site? <laughs> and... I said, here's how I think about it. I said, if it's important to you and it's going to give you some type of meaning or satisfaction by doing that, and you can quantify an amount of money that wouldn't matter to you if you lost it all, yeah, then you should do it. Yeah. Do you think I gave him the right, you know, does that yeah. sound to you? No, absolutely. I mean, there's that behavioral thing. People want to have a certain amount of control, but you don't want to have them make a disastrous decision. And so I think that's a very good high level advice that you can give on the spot. <laughs> Let people have some fun if they yeah. want, but right. control the amount of fun. Right. You put some uh, parameters around it, right? Yeah. Don't, don't become addicted to it. Right. Right. It's not Monte Carlo. <laughs> I mean, it may, it may be actually Monte Carlo, which is why you want to keep it to just a small portion of your, <laughs> your asset base. <laughs> Absolutely. So Stephen, one of the areas that I find to be most fascinating when I think about behavioral finance and biases is, is the residential real estate market. Mm. And this is a really interesting time to talk about it because we think reaching a peak in that market, we don't think it's going to be a, a collapse of the level of the great financial crisis, but we do think that we're, we're seeing a, a pretty significant turn in the residential real estate market and things are going to come down as the overall economy deflates um, and the economy slows. And that's normal and that's natural in this cycle. So what happens in the real estate market when you get into a situation like this is just classic, which is that prices hit a peak and then they start to go down. Because if, for example, mortgage rates go up, so affordability goes down, people can't afford those homes as much. So prices start to go down, but they don't really go down very quickly. 
what happens is sales volume drops, actually, not prices, because buyers become anchored in their expectation of how much they can get for their home. So if my neighbor sold their home for a million dollars last year and I hear that the market is starting to slow down, I put my my home on the market for a million dollars, I want a million dollars. I don't want to get less than my neighbor got. And so what happens is interest rates have gone up, affordability has gone down. And not only have I put my home on the market, but three other people are getting nervous about the opportunity to sell their homes. So now there's four homes on the market, all asking a million dollars. Instead of being four buyers, now there's only two or three buyers because the other one or two incremental buyers can't afford to pay a 4.5% or a 5% 30-year mortgage. And so the market dynamic has changed. The supply demand has changed. But the level of housing cost is a huge lagging indicator. It's not a leading indicator because buyers usually won't adjust their prices downward for six to 12 months after the real estate market has actually hit its peak from a volume standpoint. And usually by the time they adjust the prices downward, we're in recession. Instead of trying to mark the price down to 900000 in my example, and just sell it, yeah, I want to get what the other folks got at the peak of the market. And I'm not going to budge until yeah. it's too late. And by the time yeah. I have to budge, I'm probably yeah. going to sell that house for $700,000. I mean, the trick is this this endowment effect. When you have something, you think it's of more value than maybe the general market is worth. That's one big thing that happens in finance. When I buy real estate, I generally think of living in it. Studies by like Nobel laureate Robert Schiller indicate that people kind of overpredict the returns on their home, yeah. the real returns on their home. And there's probably exceptions. You can look at specific markets and you might know the market well and be able to look at it as the investment vehicle. But I think people should think about sort of buying properties for kind of living in them, if you will. And then that other thing they have to be careful is that that endowment effect when they sell. It's harder to sell. You think it's worth more. You're anchored by other prices. Uh, right. It's a value to you maybe worth 30% more. You may feel the value is 1.3 million. The market's saying it's 1 million, right? And that can cause problems. That, ha that has problems with just general investments too. It depends on the closeness, how you feel, I guess, to, to that, what you hold. That's right. And so I, I, I talk about it in the context of the housing market. It's a little bit less prominent in the stock market, but it's still there where the market was X amount and I don't want to sell until it gets back to that level because yeah. it was there in the past. It's going to get there again. And yeah. I made a mistake or, or what. And that's why, you know, we say the hardest thing to do in investing yeah. is to get back into the market after you've sold. Yeah. Because if you sold at the peak and the market goes down, you don't want to get back in because yeah. things are bad and you've done well. And if the market goes up, after you sell, if it wasn't turned out not to be the peak, you don't want to get back in because you you made a mistake by selling when you did. And yeah. you, you want to wait for the market to come back down. Yeah. So the hardest thing to do is to get back in after you sell, after you, 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 you get out of the market. And again, when the market is going down, very hard to get back in because you've sold, the conditions are actually deteriorating. Why would you go back into the market? And by the time you get back in, the market may be right back up where you sold in the first place. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, yeah, it's hard to time. So I think given all the trauma that we've been through, I think it's it's a good time for kind of a fresh start and kind of looking at the total picture again and not reflecting so much on whether you've sold and now it's worth less. And you should really think about the goals and people should think holistically about kind of long-term plans for retirement or investment of their net worth, uh, emergency planning. People are in different situations because of job changes, job layoffs, maybe they had to go into um, some of their reserves. Uh, other people may have gotten big boosts in their income uh, because of labor shortages. <laughs> and they may be new to investing because they've started a new job. They don't really visit kind of these decisions that often. And so I do think it's a good time to kind of do this fresh start. Some people do it at the in the new year, but I think now is as good its time as any. I mean, human nature is immutable. We know that pretty much. Maybe over 10,000 years with changes. But so human nature being immutable as it, as it is, I guess there's not going to be massive changes. But I look at the pandemic and I see some changes in people. For example, the fundamental nature between work, between labor and yes. life has changed for many people. You hear about the quiet quitters or young people that just want a job, but they don't really care about the job. They just want the income so they can have their life. Um, you hear about people that are retiring earlier, much earlier, just because they, they they just don't want to work anymore. The work from home trend or split hybrid work arrangement. People just feel fundamentally different. Many people about work. And it now is much more of an enabler of an ex existential lifestyle instead of working for an end to get something later in life. Right. And that's just fascinating. And I'm wondering, is the relationship between people and their portfolios changed as well? Or yeah. anything else that you would want that you see that's just different from the rest of your career now that we've had this sort of once in a generation or several generations pandemic? I've seen two opposite ends of the spectrum. Some students came to me for they were building a fintech app. And they asked me about how they should they think about building this app. And uh how should that people provide advice around saving for retirement, investing wealth and saving for emergencies? And as a consultant, I said, well, it depends. And I said, one mode of thinking is saving for emergencies first and then saving for some of these other things and investing and all these other things. And I was dismissed right away because they said saving for emergencies, that's just bad karma. We're like wishing upon an emergency upon ourselves. <laughs> you have that one end of the spectrum. There's the other end of the spectrum, which is getting closer to kind of the age for retirement. I think there's a number of people that are starting to think of this is not when I retire, but this is going to be when I do something different. And they might do something like throw bags or help out with airline companies get the, the benefits of being able to travel. And I think we're starting to see some of those kind of creative opportunities in this, in this new world where maybe people can create additional financial capacity for themselves to be able to change their portfolios based on looking at life differently. So I don't know whether I see any direct relationship with the portfolio, but I think this whole nature of how people think about their lives and the big buckets. And then when you think about the big buckets differently, that naturally portfolio theory, you can't look at things in isolation, right? You have to look at if I have an investment in a house and I have an investment in fire insurance, it only makes sense when I have the uh, 
two together, right? It doesn't make sense for me to have fire insurance for my house if I don't have a house. So I think kind of this portfolio look uh, is an important piece that we'll have to help people see. And, and most natural point is advisors, but I think kind of convergence of data too, where we can draw on data from different sources. I think that's, those are two things that will happen or should happen. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Young people, I don't know whether it's generation the millennials or, or the subsequent generation, but you do see this. There's a big debate that economists have around how people's values have changed towards life in this country. And you see younger people not needing to have the big house. Yeah. They want a smaller house in order to enable experiences, not things, mm-hmm. or what they consider quality of life on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's very healthy. And some of that existed before the pandemic, certainly, but I think that a lot of those trends were accelerated by the pandemic. Have you noticed any difference in the relationship between people have between their portfolios and their charitable goals, whether it be the environment? Obviously, there's a lot going on with the environment, hot as summer, ever, pretty much wherever you are. Have you seen any kind of fundamental change around how people think about the accumulation of things or wealth versus charitable instincts and goals, or is that more immutable? That's just sort of set and how people I think. think. No, I think it is changing. Um, the one that immediately comes to mind is sort of this, the ESG type funds. And I do see a lot more activity in those. And even when I talk with younger folks, with whatever dollars they have uh, starting out earlier, they're starting to think about those things. Now, I don't know whether everyone knows exactly what's inside of those things. And they also may focus on one thing versus the other. But I would see some of that happening, but it's very early. Probably see more in kind of what you described about the uh, how you live your life, smaller places, doing more experiences, kind of less things, renting, if you will, type of goods. On the bequest side, I haven't I haven't seen as much there, but the those were two of the areas that came to mind. Well, I think that it's probably naturally something that's going to take root in the younger generations. Yeah, you know they haven't had the wealth transfer yet, but maybe as wealth is transferred to them. Um, over over time, you'll see it in their behavior as opposed to their parents or grandparents who don't necessarily grow up with this set of challenges. Yeah, that's so, right. Well, really fun conversation. And I want to just, the one thing that I think is, I want to go back to, the, to the, the beginning distinction you made as sort of a takeaway, which is something that we all know intuitively. Um, and we've probably learned in many lessons in our own lives. But I think it's interesting to think about it as this level one versus level two, which is thinking carefully and, and calmly and, and taking your time versus overreacting. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, which is a term of level that me frequently. And so, you know, getting in that level two frame of mind and, and going slowly and making sure that you're putting in the effort to have both sides of the picture before you make a decision, it allows human beings to thrive as if they do that versus not doing it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, probably think more of which hotel I'm going to stay in than uh, which financial decisions. And I would say that that's probably not the right way to think about things. <laughs> well, if you're going to go on vacation, you got to go to the right resort. So that's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, this has been really fun and you know, wish you good luck with the semester. The kids are, are back. When do you start teaching? I start teaching next week. Everyone's uh, really uh, energized to start. Oh, that's great. I hope you incorporate some of these ideas in your in your work, or we incorporate your work in our in our actual practices. So thank you so much, um, and thank you to our listeners. 
I want to remind everybody they can go to womentrust.com for a full roundup of all of our intellectual capital and our, and our thought leadership on there's a lot going on in the markets and we're publishing pretty much every day. So thank you again, Stephen. And uh, thank you to our listeners. And we'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. Copyright 2022, M&T Bank and its affiliates and subsidiaries, all rights reserved. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definitions of qualified purchaser and accredited investor.